Hello, everyone. What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome to another episode of Space Talk. I'm your host, Athena Brensberger. And that, my friends, was Richard Feynman playing the bongos. A little fun fact about this incredible, uh, just thinker of our time who is no longer with us, but um, we're going to be chatting all about today for this episode of Historical Figures. A very fun, quirky theoretical physicist thinks outside the box and also, I guess, plays outside the box. Um, and that is him playing, as I mentioned, the bongos. So if you guys don't know what the bongos are, they are a type of drum that uh, I could, there's a musician that could probably explain it better than me. I've only probably played them once or played with them. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still made from animal skin, but used to be uh, stretched up over on the top of a hollow base that would then produce a specific type of frequency that would make this sort of, um, yeah, like just the sound that I think really kind of resonates with something uh, that has to do with being human. And it's it's very tribal, very like widespread use i'd say i think there's a lot of people who like have just heard it maybe at a drum circle or played it themselves and i think that there's something that goes really well with it uh with our our i don't know something with our chemistry it probably just resonates really well but i've always loved the bongos i love drums in general uh drum circles are really fun if you guys have ever been to one um you know what i'm talking about but enough about the bongos. Just had to go ahead and kick off this episode um, of Richard Feynman playing them because, again, super, super fun little thing I didn't actually know. Uh, learned He learned some music in Brazil. That's super cool picnic. Very cool. Also, hello, everyone. What's up? What's up? Happy to see Astro KV's profile picture is repping the Love Saturn t-shirt. For those who don't know what that is, it was um, probably my third collection I launched of merchandise. And um, I, I called it the love collection. And it was all the different planets. But the O of the word love was filled with a different image taken by NASA um, and used uh, to replace the O. So I also have uh, love Neptune, Mercury, Venus, the Earth, Mars, uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. So anyway, that being said, really excited to see that you're rocking that. Really cool. What's up, Evelyn? What's up, Mario? Hello, hello, everyone. And of course, Nicholas, uh, or also Picnic. Um, and, oh, and we got Nelson and Hector. Hello, guys. Hope you're doing well. Uh, if you want to, if you got a comment available uh, on your app, a commentary section, just go ahead and leave a comment there and say hello if you'd like. Um, so this episode uh, is, uh, we haven't talked about historical figures in a while, um, so I kind of wanted to jump into this. I have probably about, once again, about ta 10 tabs open. We're going to do a little bit of listening to Richard Feynman, uh, speaking about a couple different things, as, as he would. Uh, dive a little bit into sort of his history and his biography and stuff that is about him. Um, but before I jump into that... I want to do a quick promotion for a book that just came in the mail from Dr. Charles Liu. And some of you might know who that is, as he joined our podcast quite recently. And I talked to him, talk about him quite a lot. I also talked to him quite, quite a bit. He, I still consider him to be my mentor today, but he was indeed my mentor specifically when I was a research student in undergraduate school, uh, pursuing astrophysics. And so he is such a wonderful, uh, human being, but also very, a uh, very talented teacher, instructor, and cosmologist who studies like really, really cool things about space, like galaxy mergers and active galactic nuclei. And I feel like every time I say that word, it, I always have to end up doing the weird voice. So he just launched this book called The Cosmos Explained. 
It's a history of the universe from its beginning to today and beyond. Um, Really fun animated book. Um, Lots of pictures, which I always prefer a book that has lots of pictures, to be honest. Um, That's just my thing. I I really like a lot of of pictures. I think a lot of people probably do too. So I highly recommend checking it out. It's a really great, um, I think I'd say that just like, one well-illustrated book, but also two, just um, a very fun book to read. I've, I've only worked through a little bit of it. I'm looking at it right now, but it's just like, yeah, I recommend checking it out if you kind of want to learn a little bit more about different things, subatomic particles, and uh, they call he calls it subatomic particle zoo and subatomic particle soup, um, and then 400,000 years after the Big Bang. So, yeah. Definitely, I recommend checking it out. Um, it is to, to look at just all of our history as as not just human beings, but cosmological bodies of mass in space. So The Cosmos Explained by Dr. Charles Liu. Alrighty, awesome. The cover of the book looks dope. Yes, fascinating. Awesome, KB. Yes, Astro KB, I completely agree with you. It does look really cool. Cover of the book. Um, I'm, I'm really into kind of the illustrations here. I think it looks really fun. Um, okay, so Richard Feynman. So who here knows a little bit about Richard Feynman? Um, I want to see you guys commenting in the chat. I opened up this episode, uh, by the way, to for any, anyone to call in. So if you ever want to call in, I am not at all uh, an expert on Richard Feynman. I actually didn't know that much about him. I sat down with a friend of mine recently and asked him a lot of uh, information or <laughs> just like he knew quite a lot. And so kind of kind of learned from him. And then I ended up looking up a bunch of things as well. And um, there wasn't, yeah, I, 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 I didn't really like do a lot of studies on him back when I was in school. So this, this is something that is more ongoing studies, I would say. Um, so if you guys want to mention anything, feel free to, or if you want to call in, and indeed, happy Earth Day, Hector. Yes, Earth Day. Woohoo. I've been promoting it like crazy this week, just talking about that. So, um, I, I've, uh, I, I, when I got my cup of coffee this morning, I did get it in a glass, um, as opposed to even though a lot of, uh, coffee shops and smoothie shops out here in Austin use compostable materials for their cups. So it's, it would, it would just biodegrade, uh, regardless. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, yeah. A little bit easy, I'd say, in, in some places to be a little bit more earth friendly. And a lot of the straws are made from really crazy things like wheatgrass and stuff. But anyway, so let's jump into Richard Feynman. So um, if there's anything that I've gathered about him in just this sort of quest to learn a little bit more, and I do see we've got a caller. I'll take that in a, just a sec, uh, Nicholas, um, and then I will I will, I will will call you in. Uh, but there's anything I've sort of gathered about Richard is that he is a very out of the box sort of unconventional thinker. He approaches things very differently. And a lot of that has to do with his uprising, um, how he was raised. Uh, there was a lot that we were reading as well. I was, I was looking up about his father's influence on him to sort of teach him things conceptually rather than sort of like literally. So kind of understanding height as opposed to, you know, instead of saying, oh, well, there's this numerical measurement. And when you put a bunch of them together, it equals, you know, a certain height. So a, the height of a giraffe. Instead, it would teach him things like saying, okay, if you looked out a window, your eye line would be with the eye line of the giraffe. If you looked out the window from like the fourth floor, for instance, is, is the example I was given. And 
And that is something that um, I think I've learned this way um, a little bit better. And that's why I really was attracted to physics and was really attracted to, um, yeah, specifically physics, I would say. I mean, really into astronomy, of course, and astrophysics. And that's that's what my whole, like, you know, uh, yeah, I would say like my, my heart and soul is. But physics, I thought was really interesting because you can understand like, things just sort of like makes sense if you are just an observer of the physical world around you where you just know, okay, well, things are going to fall if I let go of them. Okay, why is that? Okay, there's some kind of force that's being applied uh, from our planet that is gravity. And with a roller coaster, you understand that it's going to be moving. And if it starts to slow down, it is going from a constant speed to a decrease in speed. And so it's decelerating the opposite of accelerating so all the all these things i thought was really interesting and and i think that that's probably like a very good way to teach um maybe more complicated things to even younger ages so like quantum physics and you know theoretical physics other types of theoretical physics or really complicated mathematics to teach it to younger audiences is through concept um a similar thing I would say is who here has ever heard of um, Scratch programming? It was created by MIT. Uh, it's a great way to teach anyone how to program or learn how to code. And um, that was mainly targeted, I think, originally for not just, you know, like, you know, adults, but kids specifically, like kids really learn from it. And uh, a school that I was, I was teaching at for a bit, I was teaching sixth graders about astronomy and there were kids as young as eight years old learning how to program because of sketch, pro scratch programming. And it's, you're learning things by kind of building blocks, like literal building blocks is what it looks like if you guys have never seen it before. And that is such a wonderful way, I think, to learn, whereas learning a whole language and trying to translate that can be difficult if you've been only speaking, say, English for a very long time, if you want to learn Spanish or Italian or whatever it is. Um, and I think that programming languages are quite similar from just my experience of trying to self-teach Python or self-learn Python, uh, which was in undergraduate when I was doing my my, my bit of my, my own bit of research. Um, so that being said, kind of tying, going back to Richard Feynman now, um, this then really translated into him becoming a teacher and kind of what it was like as he pursued, you know, his, his um, higher education, and then eventually teaching and then becoming the theoretical physicist that he is. And then all of his talks is it's all by breaking down concepts and questions and verbiage and words. And I'm gonna, uh, on that note, play a little excerpt from a famous interview. Let's see. I'm going to do later. I'm going to play us the uh, a short excerpt of his uh, famous talk, which was the first public talk that was ever given on nanotechnology. And it's called There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. But first, I'm going to have a little short excerpt. He did an interview. This was um, from Fun to Imagine uh, episode. This was uploaded on YouTube. So this was from um, the BBC uh, interview in California in 1983. And um, this was after he had won the Nobel Prize in physics, uh, which we'll talk about as well. But this part that I'm going to play, um, you know what, I'm not even going to give my opinion first, I'm going to play it and then get your guys's res like responses. And then I'm going to kind of share what I think. But this is a short excerpt from fun to imagine interview with Richard Feynman. 
This one is magnets. It's about magnets. If you get hold of two magnets and you push them, you can feel this pushing between them. This is the person interviewing him. Now, what is it, the feeling between those two magnets? What do you mean, what's the feeling between the two magnets? That's Richard. I mean, the sensation is that there's something there when you push these two magnets together. Listen to my question. What is the meaning when you say that that there's a feeling? Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? (laughs) <laughs> what I want to know is what's going on the between these two bits, of, these two bits of metal. Magnets repel each other. And, well, then, what does that? But what does that mean? Or why are they doing that? Or how are they doing it? Uh, you're asking. I, I must say, I think that's a perfectly reasonable question. Of course, it's a reason. It's an excellent question. Okay. Uh, Wait. Before he answers that, I want to just say something real quick, because who here has been in a situation like that where you ask a question and someone pushes back on your question and maybe you start to feel uncomfortable and you're like, oh my gosh, am I asking a dumb question? This is not a dumb question. Why are they pushing back on me? And here he goes saying, that's an excellent question. I've started to learn as an individual how to sort of cope when I'm being kind of pushed back on or questioned and not take it in a negative sense. Because if anything, um, someone might be wanting to sort of break down and get me to maybe more clearly explain where I'm coming from or what I'm trying to ask or what I'm trying to say, as opposed to taking almost offense to it sometimes, which I could hear from in the tone of this reporter and also the, you know, just the whole interview in general, there's some guys in the background saying things too. You can tell that there was a, probably a little bit of discomfort of like, well, what are you talking about? Like, are we not speaking the same language? How do you not understand my question? And he's like, I understand your question. It's a great question, but I want you to really explain what do you mean by feeling? And so well, I just want to say that like, even if that moments like that happen, try to just embrace it and then just try to just say, okay, let me re- rephrase this question or let me think what, it, why are they asking me to repeat it again? Or what do I mean? Even though I feel like I explained what I mean uh, or what I, what I meant. Uh, so yeah, so we're going to listen to the rest of that, but I just wanted to sort of say that because that is something that we could sometimes, yeah, we don't want to feel dumb, I think sometimes. And if I was interviewing Richard Feynman in this situation, I would feel like, oh my gosh, am I, I'm talking to a very, you know, for someone who won the Nobel Prize, like, is he thinking, I don't know, am am I asking this question wrong? And, um, I would have a comparative comparison game in my head, possibly of, oh, like he's a lot smarter than me. Am I doing this right? But that wasn't at all where he was coming from, but he was coming at it with a more, um, challenging perspective. And, uh, that's a good thing because that's where we grow. So that's all I want to say. Um, it feels like a usual, a usual, it feel, I feel it's usually a request for confirmation, the dumbest questions are the ones that aren't asked. Some argue. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. An audio check. Okay. Let's continue listening. But the problem that you're asking, you see, when you ask why something happens, how does a person answer why something happens? For example, Aunt Minnie is in a hospital. Why? Because she slipped. She went out and she slipped on the ice and broke her hip. That satisfies it, people. It satisfies, but it wouldn't satisfy someone who came from another planet and knew nothing about things. First, you understand why, when you break your hip, do you go to the hospital? How do you get to the hospital with the, when the hip was broken? Well, because her husband, seeing that she had the hip was broken, called the hospital up and sent somebody to get her. All that is understood by people. 
Now, when you explain a, a why, you have to be in some framework that you allow something to be true. Otherwise, you're perpetually asking why. Why did the husband call up the hospital? Because husband is interested in his wife's welfare. Not always. Some husbands aren't interested in their wife's welfare when they're drunk and they're angry. And so you begin to get a very interesting understanding of the world and all its complications. In order to, to if you try to follow anything up, you go deeper and deeper in various directions. If, for example, you go, well, why did she slip on the ice? Well, ice is slippery. Everybody knows that. No problem. But you ask, why is ice slippery? That's kind of curious. Ice is extremely slippery. It's very interesting. You say, how does it work? You could, you see, so you could either say, I'm satisfied that you've answered me, ice is slippery, that explains it. Or you could go on and say, why is ice slippery? And then you're involved with something because there aren't many things as slippery as ice. It's very hard to get greasy stuff, but that's sort of wet and slimy. But a solid that's so slippery? Because it is in the case of ice that when you stand on it, they say, Momentarily, the pressure melts the ice a little bit, so you got a sort of instantaneous water surface on which you're slipping. Why on ice and not on other things? Because ice expands when it, water expands when it freezes, so the pressure tries to undo the expansion and melts it. It's capable of melting it, but other substances contract when they're freezing, and when you push them, they're just satisfied to be solid. Why does water expand when it freezes and other substances don't expand when they freeze? All right? I'm, I'm not answering your question, but I'm telling you how difficult a why question is. You have to know what it is that you're permitted to understand and allow to be understood and known and what it is you're not. You'll notice in this example that the more I ask why, it gets interesting after all. That's my idea that the deeper a thing is, the more interesting it is. And uh, we could even go further and say, why did she fall down when she slipped? Okay. Oh, has to do with gravity. Okay, so I'm going to pause it there. Um, and I guess I wanted to, to play a little bit of that because it sort of gives us insight into how he approaches things or how he approached past tense. He's not around anymore, but how he approached things um, when he was around and, and not just doing scientific research, but working with people, teaching students uh, and, and just probably is everyday, you know, interactions with, with people. Uh, and so I think that just a little bit of that reflection can maybe give us a little bit of awareness to maybe gain um, a, a bit of Richard Feynman in each of us to, to have that, that little bit of perception. Because I think that when you can approach things from, from his perspective, you start to really question so much more of everything that's around us as opposed to sort of just taking it for, for, you know, what's on the surface. Um, so that, that being said, that is a, a little, a little interesting. I want th wanted to share Nicholas. I'm going to take you up now, uh, as my next caller. So Nicholas, if you're ready, um, you can go ahead and unmute your microphone. Oh, hello. Hello. What's up? Hey, it's exciting that you're doing this episode on such a, uh, just people think so much about, uh, personalities and physics and, Einstein, of course, is a huge, huge one. And uh, however you say his name, Feynman Feynman, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> he is uh, he's right up there. Uh, and thank you for doing this episode. Uh, oh, of and, course. Yeah. I, one thing I was just thinking about, I found myself mentioning um, 
I guess maybe SAT scores in a previous conversation with you. And on a more broad topic, there's this thought um, that I read in several different places. I, I didn't look for it today, but I, I've or recently, but that um, Feynman was uh, not at, he didn't have whatever this means, raw IQ, raw intelligence, whatever you want to say, as much as many other physicists people posit. And I just don't know, like, it's interesting thought that's out there. You think about, like, what, you know, what is IQ? What is intelligence? What is, uh, makes you important as a scientist? All these things we can throw out there. But I find that to be just sort of an interesting sort of thought because the only way we can really think about is intelligence in a very formal sense, is knowing what is already known, right? But the goal mm-hmm. of the scientist is to find what isn't yet known. And yeah. so it, it creates this sort of disconnect. So like SAT scores, I don't think they're actually correlated with so-called IQ anymore, but they were until fairly recently, until a decade or two ago, I believe that your SAT, you can look up uh, IQ scores. And I've actually had a... Um, a mental health professional tell me that I was not, uh, that, that, that I was very intelligent and that from IQ way and that that is a problem in life, which is well, a very interesting and weird perspective. And probably, uh, you know, if Feynman and I both took an SAT or something similar like that, he would probably score much higher than I, but I was high enough that it still makes me, you know, weird in terms of the average person. And so the idea that the scientist, whether or not you're going to score well in the SAT, that the scientist is a person who's always asking questions is something that we see and and find and, and, and trying to answer questions well. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like trying to figure out what a question really means and try to answer it well. And I think it, it um, I don't know, it just sort of speaks to uh, a lot of different things. I mean, often you hear about presence and what SAT scores they got and that like a low SAT score is kind of bad, obviously, and a higher SAT score is good, all these past presidents and how, did, how what were the grades and what were the SAT scores. And, you know, that stuff is interesting, but what matters, uh, you know, in your life is being able to live it well. And I think that we see in uh, this very, obviously, incredibly well-known physicist is that he tried to... Um, ask and answer so many questions in such amazing ways. And I'll just throw it back to you and and see if you have any um, just general thoughts about how we think about famous scientists in particular and intelligence in particular and what you want to say about that. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you called in to, to mention that. Um, especially too, I love when we can always relate back to a previous episode because it's always, it's always fun because it's kind of like we're continuing our conversation. Um, just for fun, I decided to look up what exactly his IQ was. And I don't even remember taking an IQ test. I'm sure we all did when we were in school. Um, but I, I think maybe just for, 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 for fun to, to take that again and just sort of see what wherever, wherever the scale is for me. But uh, it says he was a 124, which is about 30 points off of the lowest remotely like plausible value for being like, I guess, one of the brightest minds, right? I, I guess a good idea would be to kind of compare him to other um other scientists, but I think that that being said, wow! I, I want to interrupt and say, wow! So he's 
he was had some verified IQ, Howard Fine, that happened to be much lower than many or most other scientists. That's interesting, just to interject there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It looks like I uh, so Einstein might have had about a one sixty. I'm looking at multiple multiple sources right now, and it looks like he was one sixty. Or I've sit anywhere between 160 and 180. So again, Richard Feynman was that 124. Um, and again, we, we could easily do, I think, this comparison game. But you're making a really good point, Nicholas, which I really, really like. And it's about kind of what you do with life and how you interact in life and kind of what you – yeah, it's it's really like kind of just what you, you do, what you choose to do. And I, th- I think that that's what um, – he pursued and was like, I'm going to just, you know, really think the way that I think. I think, you know, maybe a little bit unconventionally compared to some of my colleagues. And, um, you know, that led him to to sort of revolutionary, revolutionizing our perspective of things like nanotechnology and then quantum, quantum physics. And that and that's what that's what he and his, his partners also won the um, Nobel Prize in. And so this is like, just so interesting and goes to show how, yeah, like, you know, it's for sure. I think that wanting to focus on hitting like maybe a high score because it will help you get into a, you know, program or college of your choice, which is what you think would really help benefit you reaching your goals and all this other stuff for sure. Like, I don't think that there's a problem with that, but at the same time to, you know, a a lot of individuals, I think will deem themselves like, you know, like not smart enough or unworthy or whatever it is. And and that's not, yeah, like I think that these structures were built in a way to help us, I don't know, maybe better understand what can lead us in a good direction, but it's not always the only thing that will lead us in a direction of our choice of our academics or career or whatever. So yeah, so I do think that that's really interesting. And I think there's a lot that's actually changing today in the education system with standardized exams. I've just been hearing quite a lot about this, um, especially just like having like relatives, you know, that are still in in lower K through 12 schools, so not yet higher education. But um, so that that's something that I think is going to be, we're probably going to see change quite a lot. And I, I think that it ties in with just sort of the, evolutionary sense of humans wanting to really kind of just know, you know, like just wanting to know, like, what do we need to be this? What do we need to be that? What does it mean to be start? What does it mean to be, you know, like academically challenged or whatever it is? So all these terms, it's like we kind of just created and, and made and and then sort of judged it, I guess, based on these these scales that our brain isn't linear, you know, like a numerical scale, like the SAT scores are, or like the IQ scores are, or even like any, ex- any exam is. And and our brain doesn't necessarily work that way. And, um, and we're confining it to be like that. So um, yeah, so, so to your point, I think that this is um, really cool to, to have known that this was something that you know, there's, and the Richard Feynman isn't, isn't just a rare case. There are other individuals who, you know, didn't finish college and went on to do like really just like almost paradigm shift things for, for humanity. And, and that's like something that's really goes to show that we can achieve maybe sometimes so much more without going down a more conventional path. And so hopefully that brings a little bit of comfort to those of us who aren't really going down a more uh, standard straight line. 
Yeah, well, thank you. I uh, appreciate that. And yeah, that's sort of all I had to say. And thank you for uh, for bolstering. Yeah, I didn't realize that that you had looked it up recently about uh, his uh, his sort of ability, I guess, at test taking about what we already know. And he did, you know, maybe okay to very good. But what we don't know is what's more interesting. So knowing what all your college professors know and going a little bit beyond them is fun. This is nice, but doing something really outside of the box is what is can be really exciting for you and for the rest of global civilization. And uh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, completely. Thank you for coming on and, and sharing that that little bit. That was that was great. Um, all right. So anyone who else who wants to join, feel free to. I'm going to read a couple uh, comments that came through. So from I'll start. And I'll start my way backwards and then work my way forward. So uh, Astro KV IQ and getting a score is two different things. Yeah. Author um, Lawrence, Lauren, getting a high score on an IQ test means you're good at taking IQ tests. Not sure it's a good standard to measure real intelligence. Yeah. Another really good point. Um, that's something I was thinking about while Nicholas was mentioning politicians. And I was thinking about... Um, you know, if, if, if a lot of people are kind of looking at what their SAT scores are and kind of judging them based on that as far as their level of intelligence. And, you know, what, again, what that is showing is that they've really, you know, studied a lot for this specific type of exam and exams. Like imagine if tests were very fundamentally different, right? It wasn't piece of paper, uh, a scan scantron, I think was the name of those things that you bubble in with a number two pencil. Um, and if it wasn't like that, but maybe it was different, maybe it was more like project based stuff, like who here used to love doing projects like class projects, school projects, those were what actually really helped me uh, uh, survive really in school, like actually pass each grade and, and move on and graduate because um, I was not a good test taker. And I've, I've started to train my way, my brain a little bit more on how to structure and follow kind of how the structure of an exam happens. Um, but there was just something about that that just was like not in line with the kind of just how I felt like I naturally would sort of do things. And, and even exams where I knew like the answers, it was just very, it was, it was, it was, it was a learning curve for sure. Um, and I don't think that it's like, oh, it's just not meant for me and I'm not a test taker. It's like, no, we all could learn, I think, how to uh, better prepare for these types of things because that's still very beneficial because that's how a lot of our world is structured. But it also makes me wonder is like, you know, if I ever end up teaching classes that are, you know, much more, you know, higher, higher education. So if I end up like getting my PhD, right. And, and finishing and then, and then teaching or being a teacher's assistant or even just teaching a class myself, like I'd be curious to try doing exams differently of where it's more so like, you know, let's take the class out and let's test them with questions we would get, you know, by reading uh, like mathematical questions where it's like a long sentence blurb and it says like, you know, so-and-so is moving. So like, like Bob and Alice, this is a common question that was on um, a class on special relativity that I took Einstein's theory of special relativity. And it was talking about synchronized clocks and how time dilation happens, which is like being at different areas in space or moving at different speeds or being around areas that, where there's a stronger gravitational influence, like around a black hole. Uh, your clock will be out of sync. You'll, time will actually move either slower or faster wherever you are. And so reading this question and then trying to like picture it in your head, this is where the disconnect was for me as a learner is like 
reading the question and trying to picture these people on a spaceship moving as opposed to imagine being out. And this is, I, I never really gave much thought to this, but just imagine if, if we were all, all, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of us were outside and we were, um, you know, given someone was given a watch, another person was given a watch and we said, okay, let's run an experiment. And this person is going to be, you know, going really fast and the other person is going to be going really slow. Uh, how many circles will it take for them to, you know, reach themselves all the way around the park in the same amount of time and the clocks have synchronized and let's, you know, test out their different speeds. I think that that's, that's not even like a good example, I guess, but I think that there's other ways that we could do experiments like this. And something that really stuck out to me when I was taking physics um, was taking a trip to the amusement park. And our project was to like measure the velocity of some of the roller coasters and understand like how, you know, their speed has to work, how fast they have to go in order for them to go completely in a loop or to go down almost a like 80 degree angle on, on a roller coaster without the seats completely coming off or like, how does the engineering work? And this is, I think, a really great way to understand a lot of these, um, these, these kind of fundamentals of physics. And uh, so, so I went off in a little bit of a tangent there, but um, just wanted to sort of, sort of share that we're going to do a little bit more on Feynman. Um, and I see we've got one more comment that came through. I scored higher than Feynman. I wouldn't say I'm brighter or smarter than him. Yeah, Lauren, that's, that's great. And it's, it's, you know, just sort of thinking about that and, and putting that into perspective and like, well, I mean, Lauren, honestly, who knows? Maybe you gotta like, you gotta give a, give a, give a, uh, give it a try at theoretical physics and maybe, maybe you'll be able to, to win the next Nobel Prize. Speaking of Nobel Prize, uh, let's chat a little bit about what it was that won him and his colleagues the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1965. So it was with uh, Sinichiro uh, Tomonaga and Julian Schwinger. And it was the Nobel Prize in Physics, uh, which was awarded to the three um, physicists for their fundamental work in quantum electrodynamics with deep Plugging actually have the consequences for the physics of elementary particles. Plow, plowing, plowing. I don't know I said plugging. Excuse me. Deep plowing. Basically, this is this is on the Nobel Prize website. But um, basically, explaining the behavior of quantum particles, how they spin, how they interact, what happens when they come together. And uh, there's a, a whole paper here, and I will of course be sharing these links once I publish this episode. But for fun, I'm going to share this link right now um, in the chat. So there we go. That is the Nobel Prize lecture. This is the full paper, but I want to read the first sentence uh, or two that I think is really interesting. Um, and this was, I think, written jointly with uh, it was Richard Feynman, but uh, I believe also to is of course the two other gentlemen that he was working with on this uh, this paper and this experiment all contributed to this to this specific paper. Okay, we have a habit in writing articles published in scientific journals to make the work as finished as possible, to cover all the tracks, to not worry about the blind alleys, or to describe how you had the wrong idea first, and so on. So there isn't any place to publish in a dignified matter what you actually did in order to get to do the work, although there has been in these days some interest in this kind of thing. Since winning the prize is a personal thing, I thought I it could be excused in this particular situation. 
If I were to talk personally about my relationship to quantum electrodynamics rather than to discuss the subject itself in a refined and finished fashion. Furthermore, since there are three people who have won the prize in physics, if they are all going to be talking about quantum electrodynamics itself, one might become bored with the subject. So what I would like to tell you about today are the sequence of events, really the sequence of ideas which occurred and by which I finally came out to the other and with an unsolved problem for which I ultimately received a prize. Um, again, again, I think just sort of reading this um, really makes you think about just the hmm, almost like so much more, it seems so much more of a human approach to something like this. And I, you know, I think what would be a good ideas to kind of compare the other lectures or the other uh, write-ups of other winners and Nobel Prizes of Physics to sort of think about how they approach it from just my experience of going through scientific journals. And a lot of you might also relate to this is it's, it's very technical. It's very straightforward. It's uh, unemotional, usually uh, very focused on, of course, whatever the topic is, because that's what the, you know, that's what their research is. Um, but I think we almost crave this sort of human perspective of this stuff, like why it's important. And I like that he said something here where he says, I'd like to tell you about the sequence of events or ideas which occurred that led me to this. Um, and I think that that's really, really special because uh, it just sort of gets you to think like, oh, OK, so rather than learning about, you know, what they did and, and prizing them for just like, you know, they're, they're genius on this discovery, it's more like, they were kind of just having this thought and were thinking about it a lot and it led to other thoughts and eventually other thoughts. And then they started to try to figure out the problem. Um, and that really shifted perspective in, in, um, in the field of, of quantum physics and, and to sort of now tie back to his, um, initial lecture, which I'm pulling up right now, all these, all these videos of him playing the bongos, um, <laughs> the, the one where he talks about, um, nanotechnology, this was something that was during this time period, and this was 1959, uh, was unfathomable to, to imagine compressing things and making it small enough where it can, you know, have information stored in a, a nano device. Uh, and this is something that really, I think, kind of shifted a lot of a human perception on what our, our, uh, limits or lack of limits are when it comes to technological development. One of his quotes I want to share uh, that he actually had asked those he was speaking to was, I don't know how to do this on a small scale in a practical way, but I do know that computing machines are very large. They fill rooms. Why can't we make them very small and make them, uh, and make them of little wires, little elements, and little by little, I mean little. So, uh, and by little, I mean little. Uh, and so he also called this tiny machines. And this is, I think, what really started to cause a huge impact on um, how things were, were made. I mean, the fact that we have our phones today, our computers, our, our satellites, it was all made possible because of these ideas of miniaturizing uh this type of technology that had existed. And if you guys haven't seen the first IBM computer, uh, it was very large. Uh, you could always watch Hidden Figures, <laughs> that movie, and they sure, sure show they have to like break the doors and cut out the wall to fit it through. And it's, it's quite comical. 
Um, let's see. Oh, we've got someone who else who joined. Hello, Mateo. I just see you left a comment in the chat. He could probably visualize Moore's Law 65 years ago. Yeah. And then uh, Picnic, scientific academic writing is a strange thing in politics of review publication. Yes. Lots of peer review. Uh Yes, please read. Definitely, definitely send that. Uh, I mean, definitely read that. Here's another one. This is of his lecture. Um, uh, there's the link right there. Again, I'm going to publish all these in the caption once I publish this episode. But this is the um, talk titled, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. Um, I'm going to play a short excerpt here. And then we're going we're gonna to go ahead and, and sign off. Before I play an excerpt, there's also an interview from Caltech University I'm going to share in the chat as well. There's one sentence I want to read. You could read the rest of this as well. Um, this is, I think, like shortly after he won the Nobel Prize. And where did the – here we go. Just as famous a teacher as he is a theoretical physicist, Feynman has completely revised Caltech's courses in introductory physics. In 1964, he served as a member of the California State Curriculum Commission to select textbooks for elementary grade arithmetic courses. I think we need another, like, experience of this today um, because of how much evolution has changed, how much has changed technologically, all the classrooms. Yeah, we all have, you know, not, not all of us, like, uh, uh, not everybody. I actually will say that. Um but I think that there is a lot of potential access to technology like computers and other devices that can uh, really shift our way of learning um, in K through 12, in college as well, university. And um, I think that the curriculum is still sort of following the previous format, which is more so using a lot of textbooks. Um, I remember in college, it would be like $300 in textbooks. I just thought that was a absolutely preposterous. Um, really crazy word. I haven't used preposterous in a while. But uh, now it's, you know, a lot of it is is has become still textbooks, but now it's like PDFs, right, that you could have on your like iPad or your computer. And if anyone who's in college right now, you might be doing that. But that just makes me think about like how we've changed so much as a society of becoming video um What's the word I was thinking of? But basically like like ingesting content via video. And we're learning so much from lectures and YouTube videos and animations. And we have great access to animations today, simulations. This is what's so important in the field of astronomy is being able to have animations that can create these models of things in the universe so we can better understand it. And because of this, I think that this could really be playing an important role in learning differently in the classroom or even outside the classroom, you know, like from home, for instance. Um, and so I think that if we could have another shift, like, you know, like how we're, we've just learned so much about sort of just the character of Feynman and his sort of, uh, in a way, unconventional and in a way out of the box thinking and approaches to speech and questions and life and work and research he completely revised Caltech's courses um, and worked on the curriculum. And I bet, imagine taking his classes must have been really, really 
cool, but I bet they were I bet they were challenging as well because I think if I asked the question and he just was like, "What do you mean, Athena? Well, ask that again." I would be like, "Oh, I'd be so nervous. I'd be so like, but but not today, not today." I think if, if, when I was an undergrad, uh, younger, but I think we all here, as we've I've learned from a lot of you in the conversation, um, you guys have a very good approach to situations like that, which is to you know, revise the question or really kind of break it down in your, in your brain. Uh, let's see, there was anything else I wanted to share. Um, he also took place with the, uh, the challenger disaster. So the space shuttle challenger, um, he was part of the panel to help figure out what happened, uh, which ultimately was an O-ring issue, which had something to do with the, the boosters is kind of my limited knowledge, but I believe it's, it's the, the boosters that's able to sort of maintain the temperature control of the, uh, the solid rocket fuel that was stored in the solid rocket boosters. Um, and for any uh, books as well, there is uh, Tuva or Bust, which I've found a little sample of. It is um, written by Ralph Layton, and it's Richard Feynman's Last Journey. It says that uh, Feynman and his sidekick, the fellow drummer and geography enthusiast Ralph Layton, set out to make arrangements to visit Tuva. Um, doing noble and hilarious battles with uh, Soviet red tape, uh, befriending quite a few Tuvins and discovering the wonders of Tuvin throat singing. Um, and so this, this, yeah, in interesting book as well. Um, sounds like it's more about music, but was recommended to check it out. Then there's also, let's see, um, Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman, and um, The Pleasure of Figuring Things Out. There's, there's tons of great books I think that he's written. Um, would, you, would you care, uh, yeah, what other people think? Why, why do you care what other people do, think? Surely you're joking. Um, yeah, anyway, lots, lots of interesting books. I will, again, write all this down for you all once we publish this episode. But that's about everything I wanted to mention. Um, just sort of going through all my tabs here. And um, this has been a really fun conversation. I think that there's so much more we could be exploring. But again, I, I recommend kind of giving that lecture a listen, maybe just like, you know, you don't have to listen to the whole hour and 19 minutes, but just parts of it. Um, give you a little bit more insight. But thank you all for being here. I hope you guys, um, yeah, had a little bit of fun today, sort of chatting about different things such as IQs and, um, you know, SAT scores and Richard Feynman, of course. All right, so to sign off, I'm going to go ahead and play another video of him playing the bongos. All righty, are we ready? Okay, everyone, have a wonderful weekend, and I will catch you all next time. And as always, Ad Astra. Dun, 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 dun.
All righty. One more thing. The highest forms of understanding we can achieve are laughter and human compassion. That is a quote by Richard Feynman. All right, everyone. Have a good day. Bye-bye.